Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Um, thank you all. Uh, this uh, post-pandemic numbers are going down. Uh, I think what the pandemic did is it increased so much the variety of classes <clears throat> when people had time for that. <coughs> when people had time for the classes, and now we're back to our normal. <laughs> if you read my Monday morning greetings, I stand with Srila Prabhupada. I talked about this documentary I saw of this nunnery, which included this incredible church. How it was in the crossfire of the war, and then it described how it was being disturbed, uh, destroyed. And, and it was like a documentary of it being destroyed and the reaction of the nuns. But one nun said something that was really impressed me she said yes the war may end but then what will people do with their lives so i think it's the same thing with covid and the pandemic now the now the pandemic has um now the pandemic has ended but now what will people do with their lives? And one thing they're not doing with their lives, at least is attending this class. Because <laughs> the numbers are a little bit less. Okay. <clears throat> now on, on Sunday, and if any of you are in the area and want to go, please. <clears throat> we started during kind of little post-COVID at this Bhakti Bandhav, and we had this um, program where some of the devotees from New York, New Jersey cooked Basadam and we went up there and it was just a mystical experience. You know, I, I explained how a place becomes the Dom and what's the difference between a Dom and a temple and that a Dom is like the Netherlands, it's underwater so it's very easy to irrigate, it's natural. And if you're on the mountain, you got to bring the water up. But if you have a system to do that, it's the same as what's below. It just depends on your effort. But when you have centers where there are people who are focused on, <clears throat> you have centers where people are focused on chanting and hearing, then it really becomes the Dhamma. And those Radha Krishna deities with the half of the Astakasakis and the full deities of Prabhupada and their eye march in this beautiful temple room. I really felt I was in a spiritual vortex when I was speaking. I just felt so much spiritual energy. And then, you know, a nice feast under the trees, pleasant weather, beautiful. So I'd like to keep up that program. But anyway, on mentioning that, one thing that happened is I left my iPad there, so I can't do the Chaitanya Bhagavad. So I said, so what I would do, 
And, and what I would do is, is I'm just going to read from Monday morning greetings back three, four years ago. And uh, I've been finding that, that when, whenever I have a chance, just reading it and commenting on it, it's really absorbing because I've thought very, very deeply about points. And what can you remember reading on email so many years ago? So <clears throat> this is an entry called, Is There Love in the Material World? So it's very intriguing philosophical point. While attending a lecture, I was skeptical of the apparent conclusion of the class that the only true love is bhakti, love for God, and consequently there is unequivocally no love in the material world. A respectful, I respectfully raised a question and a discussion ensued. So here was my question. For argument's sake, even if we accept that bhakti is only for Krishna, isn't there a danger in the application of that principle? There are studies done that show that people who adhere to movements promoting such transcendence are in general less empathetic than those do, that, that do not. Although granted, according to the same studies, 20% who deeply understand the tenets of such teaching are much more empathetic. Uh, you know, actually, it's an interesting, I'll just comment, interesting, my, my cousin came to visit me. Some of you have seen Maseba Bharti. You know about my cousin, Maseba? I have, a, I have an audience here. I have a cousin. You would really like her, Rachel. She's a sannyasini that lives in the Himalayas. <laughs> I'm very close with her. And she's very, very, very interesting and nice person, very substantial. Um, and she stayed with me at Govardhan. And there was this old late, there was this lady destitute on the ground for days. <laughs> and I saw the Prickram path walking by and I saw my Mayavadi, <laughs> my, my Mayavadi cousin, <laughs> you know, caring for her and giving her food, you know? So <laughs> there, there's something that you have to be very careful. Whether this study is accurate or not, doesn't such preaching pose a danger of being misunderstood and making us more hard-hearted? An intense discussion followed the morning class by Jai Jagannath, and the discussions continued throughout the second day of our bhakti immersion retreat. His class was excellent and his points reasonably well argued as was the pushback to his ideas. The exchange is worth reproducing here in form of a summary of Jai Jagannath's basic view, the pushback or opposing view, and what I think is the correct view which is a kind of synthesis. There's synthesis, uh, what is it, anti? anti? Mm -hmm. There's argument, there's purvapaksha against the conclusion, and then there's conclusion. What is it, thesis, antithesis? Oh, yeah. What? 
thesis, antithesis, and then you come. So this was a summary of Jai's view. Jai's class was based on a verse from the 10th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, where Krishna explained that it's only in relation with the self that anything becomes dear, and thus there can be nothing dearer than the self. Bhagavatam 10, 27. <clears throat> he gave many good examples to support this principle, like how things are treasured or loved only because we perceive that they belong to us and not in and of themselves. And how even love of family and sacrifice for country is only extending our concept of the self beyond ourselves, to, beyond ourselves to others. In other words, as long as love is based on the body, there is at least some element of ego involved, antithetical to pure love, and thus this love in the, and thus love in this world is suspect. I cannot do justice to his presentation in such a short summary, but even those who disagreed with his conclusion or wanted to modify it, appreciated the insight, logic, and Shastric reference, which he offered in support of his view. Continue his argument, he then referenced a verse from the same chapter where Krishna stated that those who understand their real self-interest render unalloyed devotion to him because he is Atma dear, Priya, most dear to the soul. Bhagavatam 20, 10, 23, 26. In other words, as we love or hold things dear because they belong to us and that our self or soul is dearer than the body and its possessions. Similarly, Krishna, who is the soul of the soul, is most dear object of devotion. Srila Prabhupada emph emphatically incurs in his purport, Lord Krishna is Atma Priya, the real object of love for everyone. Jai Jagannath's main objective, which he clarified later, was that the term bhakti has basically been bastardized in new age and yoga communities to include every sentiment of affection as bhakti. And thus, unless we understand that the true object of bhakti is God, we will be mirrored in a bait, falsely exclusively exclusive sense of love. We will then never experience real bhakti until we transcend or become frustrated with the mundane. His talk was thus entitled, Love, Lust, Loss, and Beatitude. Beatitude meaning the ultimate state of bliss. So here was the opposing view. So he's saying it, it, love only what's dear is, is ourselves. And that's uh, uh, what's dear is the soul and Krishna is the soul of the soul. So real love is for Krishna. And everything else is tinged with, with, with our, our, our ego. And it's not bhakti. Opposing view. There seems to be some problems with the view that bhakti is only for God and no one else in this world. For this view inevitably limits our conception and vision of Krishna. Krishna is described in Bhagavatam as Advayam Gyan, consciousness that is inclusive of everything. If we thus separate things from Krishna in this way, don't we risk developing a vision that things are separate from God? The basic illusion at the foundation of material enjoyment? Come in. Yeah. Maybe we don't want to talk to that. Sure. 
Okay. 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 I'm giving class now. That's I'm not okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. This is much harder to understand reading than I thought, but we'll we'll go through it and see see how we do anyway. I'm sorry. Usually they're not. I didn't read it before. Um, hmm. I'm I'm not happy that it, it it's 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 so easy to read. Um, I'll just go to the synthesis, and then I'm going to go to the next reading, which I think is is hopefully easier. Okay. The next day during class, Jagannath clarified his point. He said that the distinction he wanted to make was distinguishing bhakti as love with a capital L and love in this world with a lowercase l. I think the synthesis rests there. I think confusion initially with the presentation with this distinction wasn't made more clearly. That yes, bhakti is for Krishna, but that doesn't mean that love doesn't exist even, in the, even if it is not bhakti. A good definition of love will further clarify this point. Unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another. In this sense, certainly people do have love and even sacrifice their loves for others, even at times for strangers who have no bodily connection in them. I thus think it is a mistake to equate that all exchanges of love in this world are purely based on ego or abject self-interest. For if we do, we also lose the ability to distinguish even benevolence from cruelty. Even in the face of great examples of altruism or sincere benevolent relationships. Okay, anyway, um, Rukmini Davy made a point. It's, it's not, I'm a communicator, so when it's not to the level I want, I can't talk. So I'm, I'm skipping around. Uh, so, uh, Rukmini made a point. Very interesting. Srila Prabhupada was sitting outside in the grass speaking to a group of devotees at New Vrindavan. In front of him was some baby kittens playing and wrestling in front of him, and he was just watching them. Suddenly comment, just see, there is love in this material world. He paused and then added that although there is concern and benevolence in this world, it will never be fully enough to satisfy the soul, just as someone in the desert cannot be satisfied with a few drops of water. In conclusion, love is a general loyalty and affection in relationships, and it exists in this world, but only when that affection is extended to the Supreme Lord is it bhakti and fully universal. But bhakti can also be extended to others when we see them and serve them as connected to the divine. Therefore, it is important for all devotees to understand and meditate how they connect, can, can connect their relationships to Krishna. It wasn't as clear as I like. Let's see if the next one does better. Okay, here it is. I recently, I read in the news that there's a lot of shootings going on. So it's always going on. And this was four years ago, it was going on. And I wrote an article about it. And this is what Prabhupada wanted us to do. He wanted to 
I, I once made an acronym, Ancient Teachings, Modern Application, Atma. So I'd like to do that. So, okay, now I'm, I'm asked to be to comment from a Krishna conscious view on the present shootings, because I heard there's so many shootings and people. A fifth commandment solution to a second amendment problem. I was disturbed to hear about the recent school shootings in Florida and the epidemic of school shootings in general. I can't imagine the pain of a mother burying her own child. I don't have much to add to the debate on an immediate solution, but the liberality that assault weapons are accessible seems absurd. Obviously something must be done. Although some form of legislation is needed to help alleviate this endemic problem, I can't help but think there is something more deeply amiss at the root that will, be that will not be solved by Second Amendment legislation. The increasing widespread frustration in American youth inevitably expressed in some form of destruction, whatever, whatever their weapon of choice. In saying this, I do not intend to minimize the fact that the damage of that destructive urge can be exponentially increased by one's weapon of choice. Just voicing my concern that the root of the problem should not be neglected and that a comprehensive solution must include and prioritize what I call a fifth commandment solution. The fifth commandment states simply, honor thy father and mother. I call the pervasiveness of mass shooting a fifth commandment problem to highlight that a culture that that does not sufficiently focus on and safeguard the influence and importance of the family in the lives of its children or produce a society bursting with resentment and prone to violence, regardless of whether guns are restricted or schools become armed fortresses. Krishna voiced similar concern about the destabilization of family and its effect on society thousands of years ago in the Bhagavad Gita, specifically referring to what happens to a society when the men in the family are lost due to war. Unfortunately, today we are seeing in full force what Krishna foresaw in terms of the effect of fatherless families, not due to war, as, as was Krishna's concern, but instead due to the general degradation of Dharma itself with a grave duty to properly shelter one's offspring is selfishly minimized or neglected. This level of irresponsibility in relation to family is a relatively new phenomena, as is the astronomical spike in mass shootings, practically one a day since the new year. Can anyone doubt there is a correlation? I was inspired to do a bit of quick research to support this connection. Here are just a few of the things highlighting this unfortunate parallel between the degradation of cultural norms and school violence, beginning with a description of a reputable university sponsored project that researched the matter. Quote, the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia Brad Wilcox pointed out in 2013 that nearly every US school shooting that year involved the young male 
whose parents either divorced or never married in the first place. As the, he quote, as the nation seeks to make sense of these senseless shootings, we must also face the uncomfortable truth that turmoil at home all too often accounts for the turmoil we end up see, seeing spill onto our streets and schools. He wrote in his article, Sons of Divorced School Shooters. The social scientific evidence about the connection between violence and broken homes could not be clearer. Dr. Will Farrell, author of Boys in Crisis, discusses the same correlation. Quote, boys with significant father involvement are, are not doing these shootings. Without dads as role models, boys' testosterone is not well channeled. The boy experiences a sense of purposelessness, purposelessness, a lack of boundary enforcement, rudderlessness, and often withdraws into video games and video porn. At first, at worst, when boys' testosterone is not well channeled by an, by an involved dad, boys become the world's most destructive forces. When, the boy, when boys' testosterone is well challenged by an involved dad, boys become among the world's most constructive forces. <clears throat> End quote. The absence of parental influence in children's lives is not, only a it, it is not the only contributing factor to societal ills. The devaluation of motherhood can also have a profound effect. In this regard, I recently sent an interview was sent, I, I was recently sent an interview with Erica Cosimar, a psychoanalyst concerning her book, Being There, the prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters. Here is an excerpt about her book. Quote, it is a problem in our society that all mothers and babies can't be together for the first year. Our society tells women, go back to work, do what you want, they'll all be okay. And the truth is, children are not okay. The book is basically about a devaluing of mother, mothering in society. I was seeing a devaluing of mothering that was impacting children in my parent guidance practice. I was actually seeing an epidemic level of mental disorders in very young children who were being diagnosed and medicated at an early and earlier age, and I become concerned. And so I started looking at the research, which backed up what I was seeing in my practice. The absence of mothers on a daily basis in children's lives are impacting their mental health. Yeah, I read that article further, and what it said is, is that the children, they, it is some kind of, response of being away from the parents that makes them more hyperactive and then when they go to nursery and they're with other children that are like that and then when they come home you know it, it anyway it, it just broken families across america producing mentally disturbed and violent children at an increasing rapidly increasing rate certainly the liberality to which such people have access to weapons and the level of those weapons destructiveness is a very serious problem that needs to be addressed immediately. But ultimately, more than anything else, America has a fifth commandment problem. 
So how, how am I doing? Anyone want to ask questions or comment? Have I offended anyone? <laughs> okay, a few more actually, people. Hi, Krishna Maharaj. Hell yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, you, <laughs> as I'm talking right now, I'm realizing the pattern, but you know, you were so unhappy with the presentation of the first yeah. um, MMG, but I found it actually, you know, more <laughs> illuminating than when I read it, you know, originally. It was, you know, it was immediate. Somehow or other, it was like very illuminating. Um, then go back and read the whole thing because I only read half of it. I just... I just said, when you're a speaker and you're practice, you have some commune with the audience. And when there's not the level of rasa, one mind that you try to create, I notice it. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And so, you know, well, one of the things that I really appreciated more now was that the fact that um, love for others may not be bhakti, but that doesn't mean that there is love, that there isn't love. There's a way I wanted to put it, you know. I guess you know, just the way it was there. I'll read it. Yeah, let me see. If you, but it said, if you love God, that if you love. It said, in conclusion, love is a general loyalty and affection and relationship that exists in this world. But only when that affection is extended to the Supreme Lord is it bhakti and fully universal. But bhakti can also be extended. Oh, that's something others. Yeah, uh, this with, with yeah. some other. Yeah. Love, um, love is bhakti. No, no, bhakti is love, but bhakti is love, but love may not be bhakti. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> that's what I wanted to say. Uh, and, uh, bhakti, is, bhakti is a special type of love. Yes. Which Jagannath was, was objecting to in his provocative manner, which is part of his style, is that bhakti has been used in- uh, The new bhakti. age and- Yeah, right. And, and it, 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 it dilutes the understanding and meaning. Definitions have to be exact. And, and exact, they can't be overextended, which means they can't include within it things that don't belong, and they can't be too narrow and exclude things that don't belong. And that's why when Rupa Goswami defines bhakti, it's so precise his definition. He tells what it what 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 it what it is and what it isn't. So anyway, yeah, so I, I, I appreciate that. Go ahead, Gail. Yeah, and, and just the final point is that, you know, by, by um, being more inclusive about what love is, you know, I, I, I think it's sort of like an, an injustice to, to not identify love where we see it, you know, because, you know, to see such selfless acts among people and then, not call that love seems like an injustice. So well, that's another point. Then if, if you, it, it, then it becomes hard to distinguish it. If it's all just completely motivated and everything is the same, 
then it's hard to distinguish it from cruelty. That's the other point. Yes, yes. And that's another point that I really appreciate it. So thank you for doing that, for picking that MMG to do. Anybody else? Like as I said, I don't have my book today. Jamuna Jaya. Okay. Thank you so much for both of those. I I remember so well that Bhakti version when that happened. Um, and uh, it uh, your your unpacking of it really made sense. It makes me think of, of two things. I was re- recently reading again Nectar Devotion. And in the be- very beginning of the text, Prabhupada says about, you know, we, how we all have the propensity to love. But he says, but where do we repose that love so that everyone can be the best benefit? And I love that. I love the word repose. I love that elegant thing. Of, and it's the reminder of the watering the roots of the tree element that I think that it, it really is what I really correlate with this. And also the I was in another class where they were listening to the, you know, Queen Kunti's prayers. And she says that thing of like cut my type affection to my family and i remember the first time i read that my head about exploded but then when it's explained that this is actually to increase to make the love more inclusive as opposed to exclusive so it makes me think of both of those those points and then just quickly you know yesterday i was at the you know doing my job at the hospital and as an inner city hospital so i see all those things most of the patients that we have there's no one with them or them or, you know, or it's mom or it's dad or it's not mom's dad or it's, it's grandma raising her second generation of children. And right now, one of my favorite patients to see is a young man who's a gunshot wound. He didn't do anything. He was sitting at a crown's chicken, eating chicken and got shot in the leg. And it's just that epidemic of that that I see all the time. So I very much related to both of these money winning greetings. So thank you, Marash. Yeah, maybe I should put this out for my next Monday morning greeting because I'm thinking of doing one on uh, street unicorns. You know no, about that? Your book. That, that. I'm trying to make it Krishna conscious, other than like it's mine and Mata this picture in this really cool book. But I want to <laughs> make it. But I guess the point that the person was making, what he was doing, which I found, I found, uh, actually the. the it's interesting, the beginning, I'll, I'll read you the beginning of my article. I think you'll all like it. It's, um, my mother was a fashion designer who prided herself in the clothes she designed and the dresses she wore. And her son comes home as a Hare Krishna dressed in shmatas. Yes, shmatas is the word she used. It's a Yiddish word for rag, usually applied to shabby dress. Later, as I matured, I was more sensitive. She much preferred the brightly pressed saffron silks than the crinkled faded cottons. Oh, beautiful, she said, as she reached out from her seat to feel its fine texture and bright sa- and see a, its bright saffron color. How proud she would have been to see my picture in Street Unicorns. It's a beautifully newly published coffee table book which highlights the dress of stylish New Yorkers with the strong urge to express their authentic self in fashion, regardless of what the people think. But what the hell am I doing in such a book? Anyway, um, I'm thinking, but I'm trying to get, what is the, the point I'm trying to get at? I'm, I, and it, when you write, when you write, what happens is, is it, it, it takes a shape of its own. I don't really know where I'm going. I only know it's my service. 
and that Krishna will write it if I if I um Tesham Satati Yuktanam Bhajatam Priti Purvakam Dadami Buddha Yogam Twamye. If you want to worship me with faith and devotion, I'll give them the intelligence. So I, it's already a process, but I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm trying to think of the irony that I'm in this book of people who express themselves in fashion, because the whole idea of saffron is that material dress is finished and that you're not trying to do that. <laughs> That's the whole idea. But at the same sense, it relates to it relates to what 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 he said what, what his whole theme was and his whole nature is, is that at the same sense, by by de-emphasizing the bodily dress, I'm a, I'm emphasizing the authentic nature of the soul, <laughs> not to get involved in this world, <laughs> and uh, but and then maybe there's the positive aspect that. I'm expressing myself. I am a devotee of Krishna, and this is what I wear, and that's why he he, he kind of saw it. But I thought it's ironic because um, I am one of. I mean, I've gotten a lot better, but I'm probably one of the worst dressed sannyasis in ISKCON. <laughs> I, I mean, people know. I mean, some you'll see me of course. I go to a program, put on good clothes, but generally. It's never ironed, it's crumpled, it's 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 only I got better. Okay, it took me like 45 years to dress. But uh, anyway, that was interesting. Okay, let me see if I can find one more. It seemed we did have some uh, interest here. I, I just go through the book. Um, well, here we go. Believers and the elephant in the room, tackling the challenges of evil. This is intense. Some of you may remember it, some of you just hear it for the first time, but it's really intense. At the age of 21, Jeff, my youngest cousin, was mercilessly beaten to death by the local police in a Midwest jail for no reason. His crime, he had asthma and was Jewish. From what the family could gather, it was Jeff's first day of law school. And due to his asthma, he sat near the window in the library to help with his breathing. When the school librarian told him to move because the window seats were reserved for upperclassmen, he refused due to his health and out of principle. The place was nearly empty. When he repeatedly refused the librarian demand, she summoned the local police. They eagerly hauled off this city boy from Los Angeles to jail, and he never saw the light of day again. He died in jail. His parents and three older sisters who loved Jeff practically more their own lives were devastated. This sort of suffering and loss is all too common in this world. And it leads to us to consider the elephant in the room for theistic belief, sometimes called the problem of evil. If God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent, why then, when he knows about it, has the power to do something about it, and is supremely good, does he allow such cruelty to continue? The existence of evil thus logically contradicts the existence of God, or does it? 
Below is an attempted theodicy answering the challenge that if God exists, why does he permit evil? So I gave six arguments to defend the faith. I am an apologist. Explanation one, one good argument doesn't necessarily prove one's point. One must weigh the cumulative evidence or arguments. There may be strong evidence or arguments that one has committed murder, but that is not enough to commit a person. There also may be very strong arguments that one is innocent. The jury must come to a fair conclusion based on the cumulative evidence. Similarly, the argument against God from the reality of evil is a strong argument, but to come to a fair conclusion, one must weigh the cumulative evidence. I would posit that the arguments for God's existence are very strong, stronger than the problem of evil. Because that's the first thing you have to deal with. You can't say it's not a good argument. It's a very good argument. <laughs> but a very good argument doesn't prove a case. Just like you may arrest someone for murder, he may have, may, he may have had a motive, you know, he may have had his fingerprints on the gun. He may have been there at the time. You know, but what really happened was his friend shot him and he came in and he picked up the gun and then he got implicated. So it just, it, there, there, there were good, you could have really good, look, he had a motive. He had, they're all good arguments. So I think that's the first thing you deal with when you deal with something like this. Um, you don't become flustered. You just admit that there's a good argument. And one thing, uh, there's a, other arguments that, that I, I won't have time to read, but there's one argument from humility I gave is that um, there are many reasonable things that contradict each other. Like, for example, God is inconceivable by nature because he's, because he's beyond time. Time cannot be, time cannot be dictate over God. But, but logic is based on how we experience the laws in this world. So it, it's reasonable that God is inconceivable. And therefore, there's just so many things that I think of that there are things, both things are true. For example, a classic example I give on the nature of reality. You have two choices. Um, and they're... And neither of them makes sense, but one of them must be true. For example, that one reality or God or reality, let's talk about creation. Reality began at a particular point and there was nothing before that. It's completely beyond our conception. It's completely inconceivable that out of nothing, something comes. But that something is, is eternal 
that also, uh, had, uh, we can't possibly can conceive it because you go back and you go back and you go back and you go back. Everything else we know has a starting point. We don't have conception or realization of something. We can't, we can, we can't wrap that something comes from nothing and we can't wrap that something's always, uh, we can't wrap our minds around that something's always existing. It just goes back and back and back, but back and back and back. How can we conceive that? But one must be true of two things that are, are, are two things that don't make sense to us, that something's always existing or out of nothing, something's coming. So the very, once you start talking about God, the very conception and idea um, humbles you humbles you. I did write that article recently, you know, could I make a better creation than God if I was God? But it's hard to, you know, you, I, I gave an example, you take away all the bad things that happen, but no one grows. <laughs> okay, let me give some of my arguments. Okay, this is one argument um, called monkey on a typewriter. It is more probable that a monkey and a typewriter produced the complete works of William Shakespeare, the Encyclopedia Britannica by chance, than the world happens by chance. And if you think about it, as I write this article, every word scribed that fits into a sentence or anything in the world that moves with reason or order and every second increases exponentially the improbability that this world has happened by chance. In, in other words, the, the idea is if there's no God that everything happens by chance, it's just moving around and this is the way it happened. They have that theory called multiverse. There's so many infinite universes and this is the one and it's all by chance. But what is that probability? And if it's happening by chance, how come things keep on going on order? And every time something goes in order, it exponentially increases the improbability that it's by chance. <laughs> so every word I'm saying is increasing the improbability that this world is random. And everything else and everybody else that says something. And every so here I give that example. Even a monkey on a typewriter, it's more probable that they come up with the Shakespeare's you know completed works by chance than this world happening by chance. And if the improbability of the world having risen by chance is as close to nil as mathematically possible, then the account of the world wherein God creates it is far more, has far more power to explain <laughs> the world's nature than the denial of God and its consequent randomness. What has the most explanatory power? to explain God, not chance, to explain the world, not chance, God. <laughs> Therefore, the argument by evil, although strong, cannot in itself establish the verdict that God does not exist. Perhaps, I don't think, I think, what would I do if I wasn't a devotee? I'd be a criminal lawyer, rest my case. So what I established first is that, okay, the argument is good but that doesn't prove the conclusion. 
you have to accommodate the other arguments. In this one, the argument for evil itself proves the existence of God. By recognizing the existence of evil, we are acknowledging that objective moral values exist, which seem to point to the existence of God far more than deny his existence. If everything ultimately is just a particle of matter moving randomly, then on what basis can any action be judged moral? If everything is random, then, then why, why is there any morality? There's no morality. And, and, and this is actually speaking, this is such a challenge to the, the, to the atheist because those that have integrity realize that there's no absolute truth if everything is random. But they don't accept that. A lot of times atheistic people have strong moral values or, or, or that, you know, they protest against something, but they have no reason to. They have no reason to, according to their philosophy, because there's no evil, it's just chance. Why, if there's an explosion and one thing hits another, hits another. I give the example of, there's a, a ball, like a pool. You know, and you hit one ball, hit one ball, hit one ball, and then you hit that other ball in. Then, um, the, the, the ball that hit it in is not the cause. <laughs> so if it's just things, random matter just going around and then what is the difference between one action and another? How can you hold anybody responsible if they're not the cause? If, um, If everything ultimately is just particles of matter moving randomly, then on what basis can any action be judged moral? If everything is deterministic, how can anybody held morally accountable? In other words, our capacity to deem something genuinely good or moral, morally evil requires an acknowledgement of something transcendent that is more morally meaningful, God. Otherwise, moral judgments, even concerning the most horrendous actions, become reduced to subjective expressions of cultural conditioning or per personal preference based on chance and consequent evolution. You're arguing with someone, right? And, and, and you know, and you, you take something that's really horrible, like a really torturous crime, you know, like torturing a young baby or something really horrible. And you ask him, is this objectively, absolutely morally wrong, or is it just evolutionary wrong? Is it a product of some process that created the morality and that it easily could have been something else? Or is this, and how can anybody embrace that, the fact that this is relative, this absolute truth, this absolute moral values? The um, other arguments I had, the acceptance of free will includes a choice of evil. Uh, the world God created is the best possible of all worlds. Soul-making theodicy and the law of karma. 
humility, I'll just do the last argument. If one thing, it's, it, is, it is one thing to equate suffering with growth and renewal, but what about pointless suffering? Does not pointless suffering challenge the existence of God? Bishmadev answered a similar question when enlightening Yudhisthira. I like his answer from a traditional Indian philosophical perspective. No one can understand the inexplicable will of the Lord. Bhagavatam 1.9.16. As we have been entangled in this world since time immemorial, it is, it, it is not possible to estimate our level of misconception of what it takes for the Lord to... It's not possible to estimate our level of misconception of what it takes for the Lord to enlighten us. I think anyone on a genuine spiritual path cannot help but be amazed by the sheer number of constant and unending painful life lessons that one has endured that have helped expand one's present awareness. Lessons that one had absolutely no ability to comprehend at the time they occurred. So basically the answer to seemingly pointless suffering is to humbly accept that we lack the capacity to understand what we need or to fully ever understand God's will. The elephant in the room, the problem of evil. Acknowledge it, confront it. The theistic conclusion still stands. Okay, I, I tried something today, maybe. Okay, anybody like to make a comment? Or Jamunajai, you seem to have something else you wanna say. Yes, Marge, I, I like this format very much. I, I, I encourage you to do it again because it's nice to go over the Monday morning greetings again, but I, I really love the, the, and this is the point that gives me hope with the, the fact that people do have some sort of morality and it pops up when things that like what happened yesterday when in 19, 18 children are killed. And so that always gives me a little bit of hope that maybe somehow that, that little bit of like, that's not right. That morality will eventually lead us back to God because it does seem to, arise someone once said that people are capable of everything and it's opposite and on a day like yesterday that comes and so you're talking about that makes me think well maybe somehow that little bit of morality will, will the, the fire will be fanned and people will turn back that's how c.s uh, lewis became a theist <sighs> when he was reflecting on evil in the world and then because he was such a brilliant mind then what does that actually mean no, no, no. It means yeah. that there's something transcendent that's that, that, that it's wrong. It's not evolutionary wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong beyond this world. It's wrong in a transcendent realm. It's not created here. Yeah. Okay. You just there. Hi, Bo. Nice to see you. Always. Can't hear you. I'd like you to be here. He's a Sorry about that. Um, yeah. What was the source of that last quote, Maharaj? I'm sorry I came on late. Which quote? Um, where you were talking about, um, you know, apparent karma and not having any purpose and, and just that we're not ready for. It was the last thing you read at the end. Oh, um, well, it could be uh, Dhanadar Swami Uvacha, but besides that fact, 
let me see if I can even. Well, then it was then it was just great, and I, you know, I'll... I, I'm 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 looking. Uh, well, no, yeah, it was Bhagavatam one nine sixteen. No Thanks. one can understand the inexplicable will of the Lord, and yeah. and and the way I look at that is, you know, you have this vision of 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 God viewing us and wanting to bring us to the platform of the soul, which is selflessness and devotion, seeing all the things we do that are antithetical to that, and then figuring out how to rectify that. And it's a vision that's been following our soul since time immemorial. And, and therefore, it's, I, I tell people, look at like a spouse or a friend or something and, and look at something in them that you want to change. Well, why don't you tell them? And then everybody laughs because, you know, you wanted to tell them for years, but they can't understand. So how do you get people to understand things that they can't understand by instruction, by experience? They can only understand by experience. But a lot of times... It takes a, 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 a succession of events. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and people, not to interject, but, um, you know, I, I posed this question on, on a forum, that Progressive Vaishnavism uh, forum, that we see karma, I think, in ISKCON sometimes, words matter. And we see karma as punishment. I'm not talking about good karma necessarily, rather than an opportunity. And that's exactly what you were speaking about. When, when things happen that are challenging, problematic, miserable, yeah. they're, they're lesson opportunities. This is a classroom, as everyone knows. Yeah, that's true. But it's, it's really a, you know, it's a funny thing that people attribute it to punishment. Yeah. And therefore, don't take it as a serious opportunity because of that. Or there's different ways you look at punishment <laughs> right yeah there's one type of punishment he, he he or she did this to me from like a superior the other one is uh, you know what did i you know i'm i'm, I'm crying when i'm crying because i did something wrong so it, it, it is according to a person's training his culture he'll see things in a different way you know, someone who be chastised and hate you know if you if like for example you saw Diodna uh, uh, Vidura when he got punished by his uncle or abused I would say you know he saw it you know he saw it as coming from God and same thing with Dharma the bull yeah okay thank you Yudhisthira I'll see you at New York we, absolutely absolutely like pinballs on a pinball machine will bop together for a second before the next person comes and say, yeah, I'll get you to uh, oh. introduce you to, to my Colombian partner. <laughs> I'll practice my Spanish. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank Anything you. else like to say hello before I go? Can I just quickly say that I like Jamuna Jaya vote for an MMG designated Sangha like every Wednesday, every other Wednesday, once a month. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, I, yeah, and if I, I prepare it, I can pick the word, because when I'm reading them, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty good stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's some deep thought there and they can lead to discussion. Okay. All right, who else is there? Lal, Brudja? Hare Krishna Gamarash. Thank you for talking. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me into your beautiful temple room. <laughs> you like Darshan? I can't see it because it, it, the camera is not pointing. It's got to point down. Okay, let's get Darshan. Wow, beautiful here. Great. Oh, wow. That's great, Lal. Thank you, Gamarash. Roger. Yeah. Do you notice how the Brahmins at the program on Sunday were sitting as <laughs> and associating with these the the lower the women and the sudras? Did you notice that? Yeah. Well, oh, yes, I did. Yes, yes, I did. We didn't want to contaminate everybody. What? Yeah. Okay, Roger. Yeah. You got to get more instructions. More instructions. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll work on it, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Hari Bo. Hari Okay, good. Anybody else? Hare Krishna Gumaraj, Toto Gopinath here. Hari Bo. Hare Krishna. Okay, the rest of the families are Maya, okay. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just, the people work. Okay. Yes, of course. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, I'm seeing everybody. That's nice. Okay, we'll go. Bunch of couple, three, seconds.